LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Adam Taggart from PeakProsperity.com. Are you unfulfilled by your job? Do you wish that the work that you did on a daily basis was more aligned with the person you really are? Well, you're not alone. In fact, a majority of workers would choose a different career path if given the chance. The reasons are varied. Some simply experience a bad fit with the career that fate steered them into. Many others, however, fear that their expertise, or lack of it, will have little or no relevance in a future shaped by increasing financial crises, energy shortages and environmental collapse. But the reality is most people don't take the steps to find a more meaningful path. The potential life upheaval and uncertainty that can come with a full-scale career transition often prove too daunting and overwhelming for most, and so they resign themselves to a future of lowered expectations and simply enduring their job. But it doesn't have to be this way. In his new book, Finding Your Way to Your Authentic Career, Adam Taggart shows how through a process of self-discovery we can break the unfulfilling patterns of the past and align our work with our passions, natural abilities and values. The profound problems that the world is facing will ensure that the next 20 years will be completely unlike the last 20 years. Jobs for life are gone. Cozy career paths are rapidly becoming things of the past. But with challenge comes opportunity. Change is on its way but how we face it, or even embrace it, will have far-reaching effects on our future wealth, health and happiness. Hello and welcome, Adam, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, today, Adam, we're going to talk about your work over at PeakProsperity.com and also a book that you've just published, which is called Finding Your Way to Your Authentic Career. Now, your own life story is really very much a a microcosm of what we're going to talk about. So perhaps to kick things off, you could just tell listeners, you know, a bit about your background and how you came to be where you are today. Sure. Well, um, let's see, how far back do we want to start? Um, uh, You know, I uh, I went to uh, college here in the States and uh, I'm from a family of doctors. always thought I was going to be uh, a doctor. And right at the end of my undergraduate studies, for a variety of reasons, uh, decided not to take that path. And uh, for a long time, uh, I was trying to blaze a new path, but really not finding fulfillment in what I was doing. Uh, So after undergraduate, I went and worked for a few years on Wall Street um, as an investment banker. Um, Knew after about three weeks, it was not something I wanted to do with my life and took me about three years to uh, to get out of there. Um, I then went to Stanford Business School and had hoped to find uh, an epiphany there in terms of um, finding a, a, a better home in, in the business world. 
while I was there, it was the late 90s, the Internet revolution happened, and uh, it was uh, very easy to go uh, be a part of that, um, especially being out in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, which was sort of ground zero for the Internet movement. Um, and ended up, uh, did a startup for a little bit and then ended up working for Yahoo for almost a decade. And, um, interestingly, when you look on paper, uh, I think, um, I think it's fair to say it looked like I was doing just fine. Uh, at the end of my time there at Yahoo, I was vice president of marketing for North America, um, and had, uh, you know, I think by, by most people's accounts, uh, had a, had a, a very good career there, but internally I was very unfulfilled. Um, the work that I was doing. Um, was not making the type of difference in the world that I wanted to make. Uh, and it's not saying anything negative about Yahoo or about the tech industry. It was just for me and my priorities and my values. Um, there was not much alignment. And uh, if you add to that uh, the concern, growing concern I had over the time I was working there about at a macro level where the world was heading, um, reading sites like chrismartinson.com. Uh, Chris Martinson is, is now my business partner. Uh, we co-founded Peak Prosperity together. Uh, and another of other similar sites on the internet, um, I really began feeling that what I was doing during the day for a profession really didn't have much relevance at all to the type of future that I saw coming. And for those that have spent any time on peakprosperity.com or related sites, um, those are concerns about our global economic situation, basically based on an over-indebted uh, global economy. Um, you add resource depletion into the mix there, and um, you know, um, doing marketing for an internet company all of a sudden seems a lot less um, uh, important to the future. So um, I'm giving you this long arc to basically um, uh, give you a sense for where I was about three and a half years ago, which was uh, really feeling like I needed to, to, to make a big change. Uh, I had just turned 40, um, was sort of looking at the second act of my life, and uh, I really didn't want it to be characterized by the same internal angst that I was feeling, where even though on the outside I had a job that I think many people um, aspired to, you know, I really didn't feel um, that it was nourishing me in, in the way that I, I you know, wanted my life's work to do. So um, I set out on a process to transition to a new career, um, and, and not just a new job, but really, hopefully, the career that was going to be a much better fit with my interests, my beliefs, my values, my talents, and that I would be spending, you know, really the next uh, second half of my working career doing. And uh, a lot of those learnings went into the book that I just mentioned to you. Um, but I will tell you just very briefly, um, uh, now being on this side of the transition, when you um, when you leave a job that is not a good fit with your um, beliefs and values and whatnot, uh, and and find one that is, it's not like a two or three times improvement. It's like a two or three hundred times improvement. Your story is going to resonate, I suspect, with a lot of people because I mean I can bear it out in the experience in my own life. You know, a lot of people that I know, friends and colleagues, would gladly walk away from the work that they're doing. They may derive some satisfaction from doing it, but it's not the, the type of really proactive choice that you've described coming to. And people are dissatisfied for all sorts of reasons, uh, whether they took a job for money and then realized actually the money wasn't so important to them or other things were more important. Perhaps it turned out that the job is not what they thought it was going to be after all. Maybe there was family pressure you know, just to bring some money in. Or perhaps, like some people I know, they gave it no thought whatsoever and they just drifted into work because, hey, I need a job. And your research suggests, and I suspect this is U.S. 
numbers, but your, your research suggests that as many as 70% of people are actively unhappy in the jobs, and that's a staggering statistic. It, you know, it really is, um, and uh, that's a, a survey that I, I quote from the book, and uh, that was a survey done in part by Yahoo and another organization out here. Uh, there's a more recent one done by uh, Harris, uh, which says actually it's as high as 73% of people um, are dissatisfied and feel that they are in a job that is is not where they expected to be with their lives. Um, and that, that dissatisfaction actually increases the younger you get. And I think part of that is, is people who are older and have been in their jobs longer are probably just more resigned to it. But it's um, 64% of people who are 30 in their 30s want to switch careers. And that's as high as over 80% for people in their 20s. And it is a staggeringly high number, but, but it's really not that surprising, at least here in the States. And, and I'm assuming it's probably similar in uh, in Britain, but you, you let me know, you know, if you, if you go through, uh, college here in, in the States, uh, you know, you go through, uh, 12 years of, of, uh, primary schooling, uh, and secondary schooling, you then go to, uh, four years of undergraduate college. And in my case, I also did two extra years uh, with a master's program. And it's interesting. You, you are given a lot of facts to internalize and memorize. Um, a lot of knowledge is imparted to you. But you never take a course that is geared on helping you understand what your, your true nature is and how to, you know, basically take the exposure that you've gotten through your your uh, school years to all these different topics and begin to, to decide which ones and which paths are, are you know, the best match for, for you and your aspirations, your goals and, and, and your natural strengths and talents. Um, it's just sort of expected that somewhere along that that educational journey a light bulb is going to go off in your head, the clouds are going to part, and you're going to all of a sudden have this epiphany about what to do with your life. And the reality is, is that happens for a minority of people. Um, you know, most people just sort of trundle along through the years of schooling and then find themselves with a diploma in their hand and the need to make money to afford a roof over their head. And and that's sort of, you know, what, what pushes them into a certain career uh, space. You know, they, they just, they, they have a need and, and they look at the options that are best mapped to, uh, to, I guess, the courses they've taken or um, who's ever hiring at that moment in time. Um, so it, it, it really isn't a surprise when you think that we don't really uh, impart the, uh, the knowledge and the perspective during our developmental years to help people proactively identify and then work towards a career that's really a best fit with their abilities. We're told that we should um, be realistic quite a lot. Uh, that's my memory from school. Uh, in terms of what we want to do. And of course, we, there was a time when we could all get funneled into fairly safe job for life type careers. Um, I, that's what I was told I should pursue. Uh, when I told my careers teacher that I wanted to do something in the music business, I'm very glad I didn't listen to him because um, I joined a band a few years later and sold half a million records. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of issues in today's world. I mean, it, it, um, the face of the jobs market is really changing um, as the face of the economy changes. And I remember as far back as 1994, 95, reading a book by Jeremy Rifkin called The End of Work. And that was speaking about technological unemployment, which whereby mechanization and technology you know, reduces the need for humans to do actual jobs of work. Then there's the outsourcing blitz that happened, uh, jobs in the US in particular, going to places like Mexico and China and India, the, the so-called forces of globalization. And these are all probably, they've never been more important now. You know, the technological employment was an issue in 1995. 
it's so much more so now. And that really presents us with an extra challenge when we're thinking about, can I change what I do for a living? Uh, that's exactly true. And it's not just uh, automation and outsourcing. Um, it's, it's also um, you know, directly tied to the challenges that uh, we're going to have with economic growth going forward. Um, you know, and we've been really kind of struggling with those over the past five years or so. Um, but you know, chronically high unemployment, um, we have it here in the States, but it actually pales in comparison to a number of countries in Europe. Uh, we have a lot of people that are either unemployed or underemployed. And um, uh, we have a lot of uh, older people in the workforce that, that can't afford to retire at the age they thought they were going to. So um, you're absolutely right that there is a um, there's an effect where increased automation is removing the need for jobs. And for the jobs that are left, there's a lot more bodies and a lot more competition for those jobs. And it's it's also intergenerational. Um, the other issue, too, is that um, I can't really speak knowledgeably to Europe, but uh, here in the States, we are actually back to adding jobs, um, but we are adding only really part-time jobs. Uh, we had the best jobs report we've had in years last month, and uh, once you dig below the numbers, uh, you realize all of the jobs that were added were part-time jobs, and we actually lost something like 100,000 full-time jobs. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's less jobs, uh, available given the, uh, the, the, the poor economy, um, an increasing amount of those jobs are going away due to automation or doing, uh, due to outsourcing, which you mentioned, um, and, uh, without going off on too much of a tangent there, you know, we have all the countries amongst the world right now that are basically engaged in a race to debase their currencies. Um, so we, we, we do have a, a global currency war going on right now. And, uh, you know, the more that countries uh, lower the, the value of their currency, um, the cheaper their labor becomes to an outsourcing nation. Um, so we've got that going on, too. And then for the, uh, uh, you know, the jobs that people are left to compete for, they're really not high quality jobs. They're, they're largely part time jobs and those come without benefits. Um, so it's it's really tough um, and not to paint too bleak a picture. But um, uh, what is increasingly happening across uh, job sectors and across levels within jobs, and by levels I mean sort of entry-level jobs or more senior jobs, is you have this obsolescence factor where, um, especially aided by technology, um, uh, you have a growing percentage of jobs where once you reach a certain age, um, it's a lot cheaper for the company to hire a fresh-faced um, person in their, you know, in their 20s to come and, re and replace somebody who's in their 40s or 50s. And um, it's beginning to become a real problem, um, you know, even particularly out here in, in, in San Francisco, in the Bay Area where I live, you know, we think of this as a real strong jobs area. And I think it is probably relative to other areas of the country. Um, but there is a, a definite obsolescence in technology where, you know, once you've, you've hit your 40s, um, uh, not only are younger workers uh, cheaper, more expensive, willing to work more hours with less complaining, um, but they're also uh, more familiar with the newest technologies. And so that makes them very attractive to employers who are looking to, you know, continue to manage to their bottom line. So um, there really is sort of a perfect storm of these various different forces out there that's, that's you know, unfortunately not making the employment landscape look all that pretty in the future. Now, you mentioned uh, statistics uh, with regards to, you know, the government basically and how believable they are. I mean, we have a huge problem with that. I observe that you have in the U.S., but in Europe, um, spectacularly so. I mean, whether it's inflation or whether it is joblessness, um, you look behind, you don't have to drill very deeply into the government figures to, to realize how understated things are. 
And mm-hmm. you're, you're probably familiar. I don't know if there is a UK equivalent or a European equivalent of uh, John Williams and Shadow Stats, but I often re- refer people to his work to, to see f- how far out of kilter um, government numbers can be and just how divergent from reality. That's exactly true. Um, and I, I, I hate to sound uh, like one of those you know, jaded, uh, you know, over here we call them sort of tinfoil hat uh, conspiracy theorists. But uh, in general, you know, I've spent the past several years uh, working uh, in a primary way with a lot of the data that's uh, coming out about the financial industry. If you are looking at the government statistics, chances are you are definitely looking at numbers that are quite far from what reality is. Um, for example, um, in the U.S., when we talk about the unemployment rate, you mentioned uh, uh, John Williams's work, um, which he does on unemployment and, and also on uh, equations like GDP growth or inflation. If you look at the unemployment rate, one of the things that very few people realize is that um, the unemployment rate can actually go down uh, even with more people being out of work. And one of the main reasons for that is um, once you have been unemployed for long enough, the government basically considers you as no longer looking for work. And so they take you out of the employable workforce. So um, obviously, you know, a huge dynamic that we're having here in this country is that people um, have been looking for work for years, uh, unable to find it. And they just start falling off the government's uh, ledger in terms of um, a potentially employable workforce. And so we have this growing population of, of millions of people that are falling into that category as well as as over 10 million people that are on um, what's called disability over here, which essentially is is sort of like a welfare program, but you never get off of it. Uh, those people are not included in the um, potential employee base as well. So we have this this large and quickly growing population of people who would love a job, uh, but just have not been able to find work in several years um, that are essentially ignored in these statistics. So, you know, even though you might see that the uh, the unemployment rate ticks down a, a tenth of a percent or whatnot, um, that's more commonly because people are falling off the rolls as opposed to we're actually employing more people. We do call it disability over here in the UK, certainly. Uh, I don't know about the rest of Europe, but uh, you can get in some cases uh, on disability uh, by being a drug addict or an alcoholic, basically not able to work. And uh, but at the same time, the government is currently waging a war on benefits claimants trying to shoehorn as many off benefits as possible and we know we could we could spend all day talking about the merits of a benefit system or you know who should or should not be on it but it shows that they're they're quite often pulling in two different directions the government i don't know if you've noticed that with the u.s government they'll literally have policies that are on you know whether it's on monetary policy or jobs or whatever jobs creation uh, industry, they can be pulling in the opposite direction or, or, or butting against each other. It doesn't actually make sense because they're they're in a position now where they're reacting to things all the time. There isn't really a strategy. It's just firefighting. Greg, are you are you telling me that government may actually be inefficient? I'm well, shocked. It's, you know, the numbers are all in yet, but it's just kind of looking a bit. Uh, you know what they say? Talk is cheap, except when Congress does it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and I hope you could detect my sarcasm there. Um, uh, yes, no, the fact that, that government uh, is, is perhaps not spending um, our tax dollars in, in the most efficient way and, and his programs that may actually be at odds with one another uh, comes as a very little surprise. Uh, same, same thing happens on this side of the Atlantic uh, very, very frequently. Without getting too apocalyptic about this, but trying to be realistic, in terms of where some of these trends, you know, with joblessness and 
uh, the, the forces of globalization. I mean, look at what's happened to Detroit. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And you only have to put Detroit into Google Images, and most of it looks like Hiroshima after the, the bomb dropped. In U.S. terms, is Detroit about as bad as it's got currently? Uh, I think so. I'm hard-pressed to, to think of places that have uh, have really gotten as economically decimated as, as inner Detroit has. Um, I mean, it's it's not the only place you'll find that type of poverty and, and blight here in the States. But but I would say it, it's, it really is a poster child for failed policy, um, both at the national and, and uh, local level, um, and, and failed uh, uh, you know, civil programs as well. Um, but but it's, it's largely due to, you know, what happens when you have, um, you know, unsustainable policies, whether they be um, unsustainable business models, which, uh, you know, we knew for decades, the way the auto companies were being run, um, you know, was, was not going to be able to, uh, to be sustained. You know, you add that to, you um, you know, an area that already had a fair amount of poverty and uh, not too many uh, effective civil programs to help bring people out of that. Um, you add a prolonged economic recession into the mix. And, uh, and and really, that's what you get. And, and unfortunately, you know, most Americans, I think, really try to turn a blind eye to what's going on in Detroit. Um, but I think that a similar fate potentially does await a lot of, of America's uh, you know, urban territory. Uh, again, if we just continue along the same path that we're on, I guess the simplest way to say it is, is you know, those things that are unsustainable uh, will not continue forever. And when uh, when resources, be they um, uh, economic or otherwise, uh, you know, be, begin to uh, become scarce, you, know, you, you begin to see uh, a devolution like that that you see there in Detroit. Now, in terms of with the um, the financial crash that happened in 07, 08, everyone knows, of course, there were huge bank bailouts. But also written into that wasn't there provision to give bailouts to uh, manufacturing companies. I know a lot of the auto firms benefited from that. So there are a lot of companies, whether it's benefiting from something like that or whether they only continue business because they get government grants, quote unquote, which is basically a bribe to stay there. A lot, right. of these, a lot of these businesses are not are not viable. So there's lots of businesses in America and in Europe, you know, Japan, all over the world that are not actually viable were it not for government intervention. And of course, then we ask the, ask the question where the government are getting their money from. And we then you really you start going down the rabbit hole. Yes. Well, I mean, that's exactly true. And I think that's one of the biggest problems the global economy has right now is that um, most of our our largest uh, corporations are. You know, they are dependent upon government subsidy of some sort uh, to continue operating, at least at the level of profitability they're at. And I say profitability in, in air quotes there. And I think the major banks, at least the major U.S. banks, are a great example of that, um, although I think that also does extend to uh, to many of the world's large banks and, and particularly many in Europe. Yeah. Uh, you know, during the crisis back in 2008, 2009, um, you had a lot of direct uh, rescue packages being given to the financial institutions um, and a bunch of others as well. Some of the car companies. And and, and frankly, it seemed like almost anybody uh, that came with their hand out to the government. But we had um, we had these uh, programs, a lot of an acronyms like uh, TARP and TALF and whatnot, which were were visible, uh, you know, bailouts to these organizations. Um, what has happened since then, through the process of qu uh, quantitative easing uh, here in the states, 
and I know that it's being done in, in other countries as well, um, that's really a much less visible, but, but still um, it, it's the same thing in principle where um, money is being transferred uh, to these banks to help them recapitalize. So for example, you know, banks here in the US are, are able to borrow money from uh, the Federal Reserve for, for essentially nothing. And they can then uh, uh, use that money to buy treasury bills, lever them up, and basically make risk-free money from these handouts, essentially, that they're getting from, from the Federal Reserve. Um, and they're able to use that money to, you know, to recapitalize their balance sheets and, and to fund other trading programs. Um, so it really is just free money that's been going to the banks for the past five years or so. Um, and most Americans really don't understand that. So, you know, it, 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 their ire was understandable. You, you ended up with movements like uh, Occupy Wall Street here in America, uh, where people were sick and tired of the, um, uh, you know, the handouts, the subsidies they saw the banks getting all the while, by the way, when the banks were continuing to pay themselves record profits, which I think, you know, understandably really enraged people. A lot of that anger has died down, but I, I think it's because people don't realize the same sort of uh, subsidy is, is subsidization is going on. It's just much less visible, but it, it indeed is going on. And I think that's one of the huge indicators about how weak the global economy is, that we have to resort to these kind of um, smoke and mirror ways to take money from the pockets of the taxpayers to our large corporations to keep the, you know, the, the current uh economic machine working. Um, and again, that, that, that's just not sustainable. And what is not sustainable will, uh, by definition, end at some point. Now, we're talking so much about economics and finance because it, as it directly affects everything else, including our prospects for, for making a living and having a decent life. This, when you look at the, the global financial situation as a whole, uh, banks and governments, you look at the financial position and you very quickly realize that the vast majority of these institutions are bust. All governments are, are bust, basically the mountains and mountains of debt that mathematically cannot be repaid. And I've asked most of the people I've interviewed in the last year where relevant, um, how they think this is going to unwind. Because as you say, that which is unsustainable will not be sustained. But can this be unwound in a way that doesn't cause massive hardship and suffering? Um, you know, it, it's a hard question to answer, obviously, with exactitude. Nobody has a crystal ball. And, and I will admit to being um, surprised at how long the status quo has been able to be held together, especially after the shocks of 2008. That said, I do think we are probably um, trading off um, a, you know, a little bit of, of stability now for a larger correction in the future. I personally don't think it's going to be a catalytic, catastrophic devolution. You know, sort of we we all of a sudden there's some apocalyptic moment. And we all sort of fall into some sort of Lord of the Flies dystopia. I, I personally don't think that's the way it's going to go. My business partner, and I, uh, Chris Martinson, we we tend to think it's going to be more like a like a bowling ball going down the stairs. And by that we mean. We're at a certain baseline. We continue on that baseline until there's some shock to the system um, that creates some instability. This might be, you know, a liquidity crisis. It might be a problem with the banks. It might be an oil spike, something like that. That will create some ripple effects. Uh, there will be some sort of focused period of, of change and, and probably, you know, unwanted and somewhat painful change. And then we'll level out at a, at a new lower uh, standard of living and we'll we'll exist there for a while. And then there'll be another shock. And uh, we'll just sort of slowly be kind of progressing downwards over some extended time 
to lower and lower standards of living as we find economic growth harder and harder to come by. And um, coincident with that, we also see uh, you know, key resources become more expensive, harder to obtain, et cetera. To the spirit of your question, um, I think we have passed and, and probably long past the period by which by changing our behavior, we could avoid the pain, excuse me, of some of these corrections that I'm, I'm forecasting. I, you know, I think uh, I think even if we were to change our behavior today, uh, it, it's as my again, my business partner, Chris, likes to say, um, we're, we're not so much facing a problem anymore. Problems have solutions. Um, we're facing a predicament where predicaments have outcomes. They're, they're going to happen. Uh, if you jump off a cliff above the water, um, you're, you're going to get wet. No amount of you know flapping your arms in the air is going to get you back to your original dry position. So, you know, you just need to determine Am I going to land gracefully or am I going to belly flop? So I think a lot of these things, the lower growth, uh, the resource, progressive resource uh, scarcity um, is is simply going to happen based all upon our past behavior. And it's really up to us to say, you know, how do we want to manage our date with those destinies? And the sad part here is that, um, you know, a lot of these issues are national or, or really they're global. And uh, we're just not having important enough or visible enough dialogues on many of these issues uh, at the national or global level yet. And so if we're not even admitting the problems to ourselves yet, we obviously aren't taking any sort of intelligent, coordinated action to deal with them. So uh, I, I do think uh, we are going to be experiencing, you know, increasing frustration, discomfort, et cetera, as a global society, as, as these, uh, these forces you know, begin to arrive at full strength. And I think once they do, you know, I think we will begin to mobilize around them and, um, you know, figure out how we how we begin to live into this future. It's just uh, I'm saddened to say I, I think it's going to happen to us rather than than us, um, you know, gracefully enter uh, this new future. Now, some people might think that this would be a curious background to start thinking about changing career. You know, if you're lucky enough to have a job, some would say you should just hang on to it. But really, all the trends that we're discussing are ongoing against the background you've just described it's you know it's not going to get more comfortable so if you're in a job really that's not fulfilling you then no time like the present really to think about changing it waiting another year isn't really going to improve the landscape that is exactly true and um you know i think for most people around this um this type of future that we're talking about uh, you know, a couple important questions to ask yourself, which is, you know, how safe is is my industry um, in this type of future? Um, you know, is it one that's going to become more or less essential? And then, you know, how safe is my company and how safe is my job? So um, even if you decide you want to hold on to that job, and, and, and to be clear here at the outset, I'm not recommending people just quit their jobs and, and drop everything um, and, and go in search of the perfect one. Um, there's a lot that can be done in parallel with, you know, earning your current income. Um, but, uh, you know, they may decide uh, that they want to hold on to their job for a few more years and, and play a conservative, but, but, you know, through no choice of their own, their, their job may go away for some of these reasons that we're talking about. So I think just like you, you know, you, you, you buy uh, homeowner's insurance, um, you know, doing the internal work to really identify where you think your, your, your best place is professionally, even if you're not going to go there immediately, um, is only going to serve you well. Uh, no matter what the future brings. Yeah, and this really, just to remind listeners again, your book, which is Finding Your Way to Your Authentic Career, is really where that starts out with what you just described as inner work. And it's really about knowing yourself and being honest with yourself about what is important 
and listening to that inner voice. And I think a lot of people didn't do that. And maybe not because we're not encouraged to do that, really. We're not encouraged to be introspective with regard to these things. And that's how a lot of us do end up in jobs that are not fulfilling us. Exactly. We're not encouraged uh, and we're not trained. Uh, And to be honest, um, this is a very existential question. It's a big question. It's a hard one to answer on your own. You know, what should I do with my life? Right. Um, And so, um, yeah, we are. um, It's funny. I I worked with a lot of. Well, so uh, it is a very difficult question to answer. And uh, I had tried addressing it at at several stages in my life. And uh, what was you know, an important uh, admission to make to myself when I made this this last and, and largest uh, career transition was I had to admit to myself that that I was not solving this this big existential problem on my own, um, that I had I had taken a crack at it for a number of times over the course of decades. And, and I still hadn't really gotten to territory that felt right to me. And so, you know, what I did then is I, I basically brought in the professionals. I ended up um, surveying uh, a number of different executive coaches, career coaches, et cetera. I read a lot of literature about the science of career transition. I took uh, almost every aptitude, personality, uh, career uh, fit test known to man. And through that survey uh, of all that material, began to realize that there were that there really were elements of a, of a pretty time honored path that many career professionals understand that that if you follow the path, um, you actually do the work, your odds of identifying work that is, you know, very complementary to, to who you are and to to what you're best at. The, the odds of that are very good. They're actually actually probable even. And, and the good news is, is that it's not rocket science and you don't have to spend a lot of money. Um, you really just need to have the discipline to persevere through the exercises, through the uncertainty um, and, and make your way through all the steps. But the good news is, is you know, if you do, the odds are very, very good that you will uh, have a very good sense of, of where you should be applying yourself. And, and then it really becomes a question of, OK, um, if that's where I need to be and I'm not there right now. How do I create a transition plan to get from here to there? Um, but as you said earlier, uh, the, the, the key here, the essential first step is really identifying you know, that territory. And that all comes from a better self-understanding. I met someone a few years ago and uh, she was a lawyer, had been doing that for about 10 years, was in a really good job, uh, depending how you define good, of course. And um, she was earning it that around about was well, best part of a hundred thousand pounds, which I don't know what the exchange rate is, but you know maybe one hundred and sixty, one hundred seventy thousand dollars, and complained a great deal about the work. And I was thinking, my God, if I could earn that sort of money, I think all the good I could do with it. However, I wouldn't want to be a lawyer. And I, I've talked to her about just changing jobs, and she's basically said she couldn't afford to. Finding out a little bit about her personal circumstances, I then realised that they had you know such a big house two expensive cars, a boat, kids that were in you know private schools, all the rest of it. And quite often, bigger wages usually mean bigger expenses. However, there, there's always a way to cut back because what she was about was not wanting to, ultimately was not wanting to give up that lifestyle. But was she then going to work for another 25, 30 years to have all that stuff? And, and then what, you know, you can't get those years back. So I think if people, again, are honest for themselves, they can maybe look at their circumstances and see what is it that they could 
afford to give up and giving things up doesn't have to be negative it can quite often be some of the most liberating steps you can ever take exactly and um that's maybe a topic we can flag for a little bit later in this podcast but that's a huge part of what we're about at peak prosperity which is um even though we we spend a lot of time talking about these very concerning macro trends that are developing we think there is a way to step into that future with a lot of optimism a lot of positivity and it does require behavior change, um, uh, and it does require, to a certain extent, um, learning to live um, without some of the things that we've, you know, become accustomed to, and, and and I think value quite highly, but at a superficial level in today's society. Um, as we like to say, um, you know, both my business partner and myself, we, you know, we stepped off the corporate uh, treadmill uh, to to do what we do now, and. You know, initially we took fairly large income hits to do so. But as as my partner likes to say, and I totally agree with this, um, you know, he said he he initially probably cut his standard of living in half, but he doubled his quality of life. And um, and we can certainly talk more about that in a little bit. But your point is is really accurate, which is you know, Gandhi talked about how um, our our actions are ultimately shaped by our beliefs. So basically, the beliefs we hold determine what we actually, you know, the decisions we make and, and the things we actually do in our lives. And so your beliefs are affected by by the narrative that you tell yourself. The stories you tell yourself basically shape your beliefs. And what I found in talking to lots of people who, who you know, the, the woman that you mentioned, I, I talk to those type of people all the time who say, gosh, I'd really love to be doing something different, but I just can't. Right. And, and, and the reason they can't is they have the story in their head that, that they, they have to have all this stuff or all these trappings of success in their lives. And they don't really realize that, um, you know, rather than than uh, those things being benefits for them, they're actually, you know, an obligation that that, you know, the, the person is, is working all their lives just to maintain. And when you really ask yourself, you know, is are these things making my life better? You know, to be honest, when you you step back and reflect, gosh, they're keeping me working at a job where where I'm unhappy and I'm away from my family because I'm working so much and I'm stressed all the time um, and I'm not really able to enjoy life because of this, um, you know, the, the, the hidden cost of these things, you know, begins to become really, you know, nonsensical. Um, so a big part of this process is, is really, you know, understanding first, just understanding the narratives that you tell yourself, just, you know, a, a large part of the self self introspection process starts with just sort of understanding, um, who you are and how you got to where you were in life. And there's no judgment placed on that. Um, it's just, it's really just sort of a record of um, what are the actions I've taken and what are the belief, what were the beliefs behind those actions that have led me to where I am. And in the book uh, that we're talking about, there's discrete exercises that you can take to help you do this. Um, once you, once you understand them, um, you, you then can begin to ask yourself, well, you know, are these, are these narratives are these stories I want to continue with me forward in life? Or are there other stories? You know, can I make changes to these ones? Or can I adopt other stories that that maybe help may help me make, you know, different choices, um, may help me free me up potentially, um, to, to live differently in the future than I've lived today, and, and, and still feel good about myself. And, and the reality is, is when you begin to peel back what's important to people, like when, when you do the work, through the exercises in the book um, about really uncovering what your values are and what's really truly important to you in life. It's funny how money and the material things begin to just shed away. Um, it really tends to come down to, um, you know, the types of differences you can make. Um, relationships become very important. Um, 
but very rarely is it about material things. Um, it's usually about, um, you know, experiences. It's about, um, uh, you know, doing work that you enjoy. Uh, and it's about, uh, you know, the differences that you can make in the lives of those who are either close to you or, or society in general. Um, and so, you know, a big part of this process is, is helping people really focus on what are the things that make me tick? What are the things I value most highly? Um, you know, what looking back on my life, if I could, um, you know, write my own obituary, if you will, um, what, what are the legacies I want to leave behind? Um, you begin to realize once you begin to do that visioning work, um, you know, usually very little of that is, is having a boat or sending my children to an expensive private school um, or living in a house of a certain size. Um, and once people, you know, begin to get clarity on what their true priorities are, you know, they begin to feel more comfortable doing something that might be a little bit different than what their neighbors are doing or what their social circle are doing because they have a clearer sense as to why they're doing it. Um, it begins to give people both the, the clarity and the confidence to make changes, especially changes that differ from what society's expectations are of them. And and one thing that I learned that was really important uh, for me personally, but I think I've, I've, I've seen it have the same effect on a number of other people. I talked to a psychiatrist during this process who, um, you know, about career transition, and, and they mentioned that as part of the, the healthy maturation process of a human adult is um, at some point in your life, you, um, you, you reach a stage where um, you make the shift from having lived your life based upon others' expectations of you and make a conscious choice to start living your life based upon your expectations of yourself. So if you think about it, um, you know, most of your first couple decades in life are spent, um, you know, living according to others' expectations, your parents, your friends, what other people were doing when you got out of college, you know, what society, the media are telling you to do. Um, that's, that's very influential in terms of the choices that you make in life and particularly in terms of what, what job path um, you decide to go on. Um, but at some point in life, you are supposed to begin to realize that, you know, life isn't infinite. Um, your life will end. You only have a certain number of decades left of health, hopefully. And, uh, you know, how do you want to use them? Because you're, you know, this, this isn't a dress rehearsal, right? You're, you're just going to go around once. And so you're supposed to get um, uh, oriented around, okay, well, you know, what are the things I really want? And, and begin to shape your life around that. And, and, and this is somewhat of the, the genesis of the, the, the um, midlife crisis, you know, that we hear about. Um, but the healthy way to go through that is to, you know, again, understand, have, you know, take the understanding of yourself you've gained in your first couple of decades and use that to say, OK, well, you know, what's truly important to me? And that's what I'm going to prioritize for the next half of my life. Well, in terms of uh, materialism, uh, life really is like a game of Monopoly. You know, and as they say, it all goes back in the box um, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great saying. You don't get to take it with you. But in terms of other people's expectations and some people will, one of the first things that they'll come up against if they think about a career change, particularly if it means, uh, you know, doing something like you did, taking a, a cut in uh, wages, the first thing they might come up against is family objections, um, or there might be a lack of support there at home, or maybe the kids think they're going to have to, you know, maybe have one holiday a year instead of three or whatever it happens to be. So the, people can develop strategies for working around that. They certainly can. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, um, to, to make a career transition, you don't have to you know, cut the cord with everything tomorrow and uh, and start from scratch. Uh, and, and you also don't have to, uh, 
you know, it shouldn't be a, a life sentence to a life of penury for for you or, or, the, or those that you depend on. Um, uh, really what the process is all about is, you know, again, doing the self-introspection that we've, we've talked a little bit about here. And there's a lot more in the book about, um, what that process looks like and the exact steps that, that you can take to, uh, to get that type of, of, of better self-understanding. Once you feel that you know what direction you want to move into, um, then it is a question of, okay, um, how do I identify the right industry? How do I identify the right, uh, you know, the right job, the right type of work in that industry, and then then either how do I get hired or how do I start something on my own? One of the key parts of, of the middle section, which really is um, taking the, the insights and then mapping it to a specific vision, is recruiting your support structure. And uh, it's great if you have a family that can lend the emotional support uh, that you want. Um, but there's a section of the book you know, that talks about it, it's really helpful to get a, uh, get a career guide to help you through this process and get a a support group of uh, people that you can kind of check in with on a weekly basis to uh, uh, to update on on what you've learned over the past week and what you're going to do with the next week and bounce ideas off of. And some of the advice there is is really don't include your family in in that circle. And the reason why is is for many of the reasons that you mentioned. Um, it's really hard for them to be objective. Uh, they've known you for a long time and they have certain assumptions about you which may or may not be accurate uh, with the inner you that you're you're finding from the, uh, the insight work earlier. Um, and, and they also, particularly if it's a spouse or, or obviously child, if, if it's people that are, are dependent upon you for your current wages, um, they're going to find, you know, there's a lot of fear there, right? They, they, they carry a lot of concern that, that in this transition, you might end up in a place where you're making less money and the family has less options. And so, you know, they, they very well may be sabotaging you and it, it may not even be conscious. It might be on the, at the subconscious level. Um, so, you know, a big part of this this transition uh, journey is, you know, is finding support sort of outside of those that immediate circle of, of, of family and, and dependents um, so that you 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 can kind of do the work without the pressures of people telling you that, uh, you know, it might be a bad idea. Um, once you once you have determined, you know, where you need to be work wise um, and, and begin to actually work on finding uh, you know opportunities there. Um, you know, that's where there's, there's a lot of variety and a, a lot of different ways to skin the cat. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's many different paths you can, you, you can take to making the ultimate transition. Um, obviously the best, if you can afford it is, uh, to, you know, to, to cut the cord with your previous job and just focus completely on, uh, you know, your new industry, uh, your new, the new opportunities that you're going for. Um, not everybody can afford to do that. Uh, knowing that I was going to make that that leap, I did spend some time in in the year leading up, uh, saving up some some cash and some dry powder so that I'd, I'd have uh, enough runway. At least I hoped at the time was would be enough runway, and it was uh, to see me through a lean period before you know the income from my new job was was where I wanted it to be. But there's you know there's lots of ways to do this. You can you can work part time. Um, you can get. Uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, project-based work, et cetera, um, ways to begin to get experience in the new field that's on top of your existing job. Um, so, you know, you're, you're not sacrificing income until you have enough confidence. Um, and obviously, there's enough pull from from the new market you're trying to get into. Once they know you, they know your aptitude, they know your, your um, uh, level of probability for success in this field. Um, that hopefully you begin to get job offers that make it easy for you to make the switch. But but even if you don't, you know, the two two things I'll say. Um, one is, and this was very much true in my case, 
If you are empirically pursuing uh, a, a new career track um, that is based upon the knowledge that you gain through all the exercises that we talk about um, and, you know, months uh, work uh, worth worth of self-exploration and you know mapping your skills, beliefs, values, capabilities, et cetera, uh, to the new work you're going to be doing. Once you put yourself in that new environment, the odds are much better than not that you're going to outperform because you're basically playing to all your key strengths. Um, that's the whole purpose of, of the transition experience. It's, it's to, it's to put you in a, in a place that's much more aligned with your, your natural capabilities. So chances are good. You're going to outperform. And, um, in the long run, you know, basically, um, uh, money makes its way to value. So if you are creating value, um, better on a relative basis to other people that are in your new field, because it's where you're supposed to be, that value is going to be identified and, and you're going to either be able to command, uh, you know, a salary, uh, that's worthy of your, your abilities, um, or you may progress, you know, more quickly, faster than other people up to higher salaries. Um, or if you're creating your own business, you know, customers are going to find you and, uh, you know, you should be, um, eventually outperforming, you know, everybody else that's in that space that, that is not there for the same reasons that you are. So, um, an important part of the process is, is really sort of having that confidence that, look, when I put myself in the right position, um, you know, value, uh, money is going to find me if I'm creating value. Um, secondly is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, through the, the, the self-introspection process, you really do begin to realize it's not the money at the end of the day that that's a pri primary driver for you, or most people will find that. It was hard for me to grapple with this beforehand, but, but now having done it, I can, I can say, I can give a personal testimony, it's definitely this way. Um, if you need to take a sacrifice in terms of your income, but you are taking a dramatic leap forward in terms of getting fulfillment out of, you know, waking up in the morning and, and believing in what you do and being, you know, excited about the difference you're going to make in the world that day. That 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 is a trade-off that is is very easy to make once you put yourself in this position. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I want to caution here and say, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to sell people that look. If you all of a sudden take an 80% pay cut and you can't put food on the table, but you like what you do, go do that. Um, you need to be realistic about, you know, your your base needs as uh, what you need to do for your lifestyle and meeting that for yourself and your dependents. But um, provided you're able to meet those base needs, the benefit of being in a great fit job in terms of the life value that you get out of it can far exceed the difference between, you know, making an extra 20, 30, 40,000 pounds. Now, for some people, particularly if they don't have dependents, uh, making a more complete break in the short term may be an option. And there's something to be said for it, depending on your circumstances, because the way not to stack shelves in Walmart is to not stack shelves in Walmart. And by, <laughs> exactly. By that, I mean that literature um, going back 100 years on wealth creation and generation and how to life coaching stuff how to be where you want to be talks about the psychology of this and to the great extent that we create our own reality in a way so if you're doing something that you really don't like doing and worse still it's menial and badly paid if you then stop doing it you won't be doing it anymore and of course the question is uh, people say oh yeah but what am i going to do for money but then, again, for some individuals, this will be possible. Necessity is the mother of invention. If you then need to, to, to find a way to do something else, that will be a great incentive for you. So not for everybody, but pulling the plug. I mean, I've done it before. Pulling the plug on something sometimes can be the only way to, to get you to move forward. 
Well, exactly. And, and I, I think I alluded to this earlier. That That's what the career coaches say. If you can at all afford to do it, it really is best to cut the cord. It, it removes the psychological baggage you had of getting up every morning and schlepping into a, you know, a job that, that you know, didn't meet your needs emotionally. It also, uh, so it's, it's, you, you remove a negative. Um, it also is quite freeing. You know, if, if you've done the, the previous work in terms of really understanding who you are and, and um, what you're looking for, you know, that work, I kind of call it, that, 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 is, that is crystallizing your compass points. That's what you're going to use to navigate through the uncertainty. So, um, you know, if after doing that, you are able to cut the cord with your, your old employer, um, you know, there, there's, there's sort of a, a bit of an enthusiasm of, all right, look, I've got this compass. Um, I'm, I'm off on a, you know, I'm off on a journey to a better place. There's the optimism that comes along with that. Um, and then there also is a little bit of the, the, the necessity, you know, the, the, the sort of healthy, I hesitate to use the word fear, but the sense of like, all right, you know, I've, I've, I've cut the cord. I'm up here on the tightrope now. You know, I, I, I better, you know, I, I better start walking across the, uh, the, the tightrope here to the other side. Uh, you know, I can't just stay here forever. So um, it, it's definitely, um, you know, as, as the, uh, the, the career coaches say, it's kind of the right combination of, of, of incentives uh, for you to have, have good probability of actually making real progress on here. I, you know, and I love the fact, too, that, that uh, I love your, your phrase about uh, not working at Walmart. You know, it, it, again, it kind of goes it goes to changing our narratives. You know, if, if, if all we know is something we don't like, it, it's really hard to see the world through different eyes until we actually stop doing that. Right. So, you know, if, if you don't like it and you know you don't want to do it, um, life is short. Just stop doing it and get on with your life. So uh, the, the challenge with that is, is, you know, obviously not not everybody can do it. And like I said, you need to be cognizant of what your sort of minimum needs are. But uh, you'll be surprised about how uh, ingenious and ingenuous you can become um, as soon as you've, you've cut the safety net and, uh, and don't have it anymore. And I'll tell a quick little story about that. I had a um, I went to a very small school. Uh, in a small little rural area in New England, uh, in the U.S., and uh, uh, my school had uh, drew from a number of different towns, had about 100 people per class, and uh, one of my best friends there, um, he had a good singing voice, uh, he was in a lot of the theater productions there, and um, not the world's best student, and when he graduated from high school, he said, you know, I'm going to go make it, uh, I'm going to go down to, to Broadway, to, to Manhattan, and see if I can, you know, make a career there. And, you know, most of us were thinking, well, all right, you know, good luck. But, you know, a lot of people that have done that, that, that it hasn't worked out well for. Um, and to be honest, you know, you, you haven't really applied yourself that much to your studies. You're, you're not the best student. You don't have a ton to fall back on. And, you know, we're, we're a small little town. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to be the star in the, the, the local production here. But, you know, this is Broadway. That's where people from all over the world go. Well, he went down there, and, and long story short, uh, I just saw him this summer. He was the lead in, in uh, the traveling show of Les Mis out here in San Francisco. I've seen him on Broadway as the lead in Miss Saigon. Uh, he was in Les Miserables there on Broadway for many years. Um, so definitely you know, had a very successful career. And when I caught up with him this past summer, you know, we were reflecting on his, his life arc, and you know, I asked him, you know, what did he attribute his success to? And he said two things. He said, one, you know, very early on, I did identify what my passion was and I just committed myself to, uh, to pursuing it. Um, you know, and I was just happy to get work in that field, no matter what that work was. And the second part was the fact that he went to Manhattan without a safety net. 
And he said, look, I knew that if I had a safety net, I was going to use it. I wasn't going to be as hungry. I wasn't going to work as hard. And, um, you know, it was, it was cutting that cord with, with, uh, you know, what he knew back home and, and, and the safer jobs that, you know, he could have made an okay living at, but not have been living his, his, his passion. Um, and, uh, and just going and putting it all on the line. Um, and you know, I don't want to say it, it happens that way for everybody, but you know, there's a saying here in the States, I, I, I don't really, um, I have a lot of moral issues with lotteries, but they have a great slogan out here. Um, say you can't win if you don't play. And uh, I think the very same is true for life and our life's goals is, you know, if we don't put ourselves out there and in the game, you know, you, you can't win if you don't get in the game. So I think I might have deviated a little bit from your initial question. But, yes, if you're stocking shelves at Walmart and that's not what you want to do for a living and you can afford to stop doing it today. No, well, this kind of leads us on, actually, to the other side, the flip side of the what a lot of people will how can I put this? Get distracted by, which is a fear of failure, and that's actually the fear of success. And that I don't know if you've come across this in people, but the idea that if looking inside yourself and being honest with yourself, that you might find that you've got some kind of calling, that there's some kind of life purpose here that you can live up to. And sometimes people are afraid to to step into the light, really, for what they feel perhaps that they could do, they could achieve, they could become. If they really, you know, cut, cut the bones for themselves. I'll be honest and say I haven't countered it nearly as much as I counter uh, fear of failure or or perhaps I even feel a failure. But um, fear of disinterestingness, if that's even a word, but where people you know, begin the, the self-exploration with the concern of well, what if I learn a lot about myself and it's not all that special. Right. What if what if my best work is a job that that isn't you know, a really sexy job. It's, it's, it's not a job that, um, you know, people commonly aspire to. What, what if I'm a smaller person than I think I am? I think that fear comes up an awful lot. I suppose there, there, there certainly could be the fear of success that you, you mentioned. And, and certainly with that, you know, I'm, I'm assuming in people's minds comes, comes a certain obligation that maybe they're not ready yet to, to live up to. Um, I will say I, 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 I've encountered that less, but I guess at a high level, what I can say is um, I have not seen any instances in where more self-understanding was a bad thing. Um, it's increasing perspective. And you know, to use my compass analogy, if you have a better way to navigate and a better way to make decisions in life, uh, that's only a positive. Um, you, you don't have to take you know, you're in control of the actions that you take um, out of the insights that you glean from this process. So if you decide that uh, you are are really just best suited to be, you know, a, a, an emergency room surgeon saving lives every day, but for other reasons and priorities, that's not the lifestyle you want to have. Um, that's fine. It doesn't mean you <laughs> doesn't mean you have to do that or nothing. Um, but what you can do is you can look at the elements of that job that make it a best fit for job for you. And see if you can find those in other areas that are a better fit with your other life's priorities. Psychology and how we approach things also comes into play here because we still need to have the trash hauled out. Um, somebody needs to clean the streets. And if Walmart are to stay in business, somebody's got to put the goods on the shelves. And this is not to counsel perhaps sticking with something that you really don't like. But if you're going to do one of these tasks, you can do it consciously and bring your best to it and be proud in doing a good job and i've certainly met people doing what get you know classed as menial or low-paid jobs 
and they have their whole attitude has filled what they're doing with, with just joy and service and they like their work for what it is and because they bring the best of themselves to it and that's again just about changing your thinking about what you're doing exactly um in you know a, a, an alternate title for the book that uh that i was i was considering was living with purpose and really the whole point of this is really finding out what you're supposed to be doing in, in many ways, sort of what, what your professional purpose in life is, and then going out and doing that to the best of your ability. And you're exactly right. There really almost is no job that is uh, better or worse than, than another one from a, from a, a value standpoint. Um, there are just jobs that, that need doing and, and uh, you know, people need, people need, uh, need to do them. And if you are doing the ones that you are best fit to do, and, and bringing your best self to that job, there is joy in that because you have purpose, you know you know what your role is, you know the difference that you're making. Um, and, and that's really, I think, that's the brass ring in the story here. You know, this, this isn't a, a book that I've written that gets you to a specific, a specific type of job, um, meaning I'm not trying to get everybody to go into a certain field or do a certain type of work. It's, it's, it's a book that is designed to help you find the work that you're supposed to be doing, whatever that work is. And once you do that, you're then living with that self of purpose. And what I'm hoping is, is that 70 plus percent of people we talked about, we've shifted them out of a position where, you know, they're very unhappy and, and their work is sort of a, a life and a steam sucking experience. <laughs> and we're shifting that to work that, uh, you know, they get up in the morning, they're still perhaps logging the same number of hours. But it's a joyful experience that is, you know, feeding their self-esteem uh, because they they know how they're being constructive in the world. So um, that's exactly what we're trying to do here. Now, uh, another dimension of all this against the background of how the economy is changing, and that's the idea of having multiple mini careers. You talk, talked earlier about doing you know, project work and also the idea of portfolio working. You might do five different things in your life, you know, and one on Monday, a different one on Tuesday and different revenue stream that that can be a way to put this new picture together uh, for people and it is more relevant as I say just the way that the you know jobs market and the way industry and the way the internet has changed everything it makes this sort of living and working much more possible it certainly does um, and uh, you know the internet I think has been transformative and, and despite a lot of the economic malaise we've talked about we're very fortunate to be living with this this era or living in this era and um you know, for for anybody that that has a computer and an internet connection at their house, um, there is a you know a whole new world available to them uh, in terms of you know digital work uh, that that wasn't available you know a decade ago essentially, and the the tools and the costs of uh, you know running small business or part time work um, you know out of a home office. Uh, have come down dramatically. Um, in fact, even even just services that you know five years ago um, would have cost hundreds or thousands of dollars to a small business are now essentially free online. Um, so you know the, the the internet is certainly a very empowering tool for the person that's looking to you know add supplemental income streams without perhaps cutting the main one that they have right now. Um, there's also a lot of logic behind that, given the economic. Uh, conditions that you and I have talked about and the economic uncertainty. Uh, one of the things that we talk about, peak prosperity, uh, a big focus we have is on what we call developing resilience. 
And this essentially is, look, nobody knows exactly what the future is going to bring, but there are investments that we can be making today so that um, regardless what happens in the future, you're going to be more insulated against systemic shocks to either the system or to your life specifically. So in the case of uh, in the case of employment, you know, a systemic shock would be you wake up one morning and, and there's a pink slip on your desk and uh, your your income stream is all of a sudden you know vaporized in a layoff. Um, uh, you know, we we completely advise people that uh, if if they can. Um, begin to develop income streams that you have greater control of. And, and those obviously, you know, can either be multiple income streams with multiple employers. And that way, if one employer implodes, you know, you haven't lost all of your income. And then secondly, um, you know, if you're able to start your own business or, you know, have a, a self-employed uh, business like a consultancy or whatnot, um, you know, that's actually income that you own. And, uh, you know, you, you can focus on your clients and keeping them happy and not have to worry about, you know, some employer arbitrarily deciding to downsize overnight. So um, opening your mind to a, a job portfolio, if you will, of having um, you know, multiple income streams through multiple types of jobs, I think is a really healthy outlook to take. And um, particularly if you don't want to give up that initial income stream. Um, beginning to add one or several of these incremental income streams on the side, I think, is a really smart step to undertake. And all of this, of course, is relevant to a couple of other areas of concern beyond people's jobs, and that's the issue of retirement and pensions. We see retirement ages being, you know, government retirement ages being raised to you know, the age when you can claim uh, retirement benefits going up effectively, and enormous problems with pensions, whether that's pension providers and pension fund managers, you know, getting tied up with all the mess in the uh, the banking system, or whether that's individuals inability to provide a pension for themselves because they can't simply cannot afford to save for right. retirement the ways of working that we've just been talking about there's scope there for well you know maybe retirement goes away altogether you know who knows what life life will be like when you and i are 70 or 80 maybe we'll still be working but that could be a good thing particularly if you're doing fulfilling work and if we can't have a huge pension pot so we can basically sit on the, the porch for 25 years you know well maybe that that won't be such a bad thing well, I completely agree. And again, this all comes to just, you know, beginning to shift the narratives in our head, right? And, and doing so in a reality-based way. So um, I agree with you completely. The, the, the current uh, benefits and entitlements that have been promised by governments, especially most Western governments, are, are, are if we're honest with ourselves, are just not going to materialize. You know, certainly not at the at the amounts that they have currently been promised. Um, and I can obviously speak more intelligently about um, what's going on here in the States, but my uh, quasi-informed understanding is that's quite similar um, in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. Existing retirees or people that are entering retirement, the honest answer is is, is they are just not going to get as much as has been promised to them. The, the, the money is not there. The countries are so overly indebted, um, and in many cases, really technically insolvent, that um, it, it's literally just not going to happen. Um, and then for younger generations, to your point, re, re, you know, retirement not even might not even really be an option because there's really only two two options available to the government here um, based upon its their level of indebtedness. Um, one is default, which you know very well may happen. Um, I, I actually think it's it's probably going to be. The next American president is going to have to look in the TV cameras and tell America's seniors that they're just going to get less than they were expecting. 
they're, they're, so they're either going to default like that or what they're going to do is they're going to print. So they're going to nominally meet the, the, the Social Security payouts or, or the pension payouts. Um, but the purchasing power of those dollars is going to be much, much less. So, you know, in effect, um, you know, the, the check you're getting really is not going to be all that material. So, you know, with with that outlook, I think the realistic person needs to say, OK, well, then, you know, if I don't want to be 100 percent vulnerable to that, what are my options here? You know, that goes to transitioning to a career where you're probably going to outperform and uh, having greater uh, career stability that way, building a portfolio of incomes like we've just been talking about. But to the core of your comment there, which I completely agree with, is, look, if you're not going to have a retirement or at least a fully funded retirement in the future, you can do one of two things about it. You can kind of plod towards that future feeling really bitter, or you can put yourself in a position where you enjoy the life you have, where you wake up every day feeling good about the work you do. And when you look at it from that binary point of view, I think the choice begins to become a lot easier to make, which is all right. It is all going to go back in the box. You know, let me at least uh, get the value I want to get out of my life while I'm here on this earth. And um, uh, let me do something that's that's true and authentic to my nature. Adam, perhaps in closing, just mention once again, uh, we're discussing your book, which is Finding Your Way to Your Authentic Career. Um, now that's widely and easily available. But to wrap up for today, maybe you could share website details with listeners and tell people about some of the resources available at peakprosperity.com. So um, just to tick the book off for a moment, you've got the title correct, Finding Your Way to Your Authentic Career. It's on Amazon.com. There's also electronic uh, ebook versions available, too, if you prefer your re- to read your books that way. But probably the easiest way to go is just go to Amazon and, and search for that title. In terms of Peak Prosperity and its resources, if you're interested in learning more about the macro trends that we've talked about here on the call, then um, certainly peakprosperity.com is a good place to go and spend some time. Um, and, and I would recommend beginning your time there by watching the video series called The Crash Course, which is what Chris Martinson, who's my business partner, um, he put together back in 2008. And I think it's still the best articulation of what is happening at a macro scale around the globe that is going to impact our future. Chris basically distills it all down by saying, because of all these factors, the next 20 years are going to look completely different from the previous 20 years. Um, So if you're somebody who's curious about about what that means and and, uh, what might be coming down the pike, um, I definitely recommend you, you, you start there. As I mentioned, we have a big focus on the site in terms of helping people take prudent action today for the future based upon the trends we see coming. And that's where we get into the resilience building. There is a a section of the site called resilientlife.com. So you can either just enter that URL directly or you can go to peakprosperity.com and in the top menu, click the prepare tab. But this is really the, the resources section of the site for people who are interested in stepping into the future with optimism, with um, excitement, with grace. And what we have there is an awful lot of content that basically is focused around personal resiliency building. So what do I mean by that? Well, it does have some information about financial steps that you can take, but it is, it is mostly about um, other aspects of your lifestyle. So it's about making yourself, uh, reducing your energy footprint, um, making your home more energy efficient, you know, basically reducing your dependency on fossil fuels because through trends like peak oil, our energy costs are going to be, our fossil-based energy costs are just going to be creeping ever highward uh, through the, the, the remainder of our lives at least. Um, It's about strengthening community. It's about um, improving your health. It's about uh, sourcing more of your calories locally so that if through uh, higher energy costs or other uh, resource related issues, food costs begin to go up, um, you have a steady supply of hopefully 
high nutrition local food um, that you've either sourced from your local community, perhaps even grown some of it yourself. There is uh, there are lots of skills in there, everything from from gardening to raising animals to uh, building community. I think I mentioned that earlier. Uh, to um, installing energy efficient technology in your home, lots of skills, many of which were skills that would have been familiar to your grandparents or the generations before them. But we've gotten distance from them in the past couple of generations, again, largely due to, to, to really cheap energy. And, um, you know, with that era beginning to wane, ba- basically beginning to you know, adopt some of these skills and becoming a little bit more able across a broader spectrum of these these skill sets. Um, are going to help you have um, a lot of confidence uh, that you're going to be able to handle much of what life might be able to throw at you in the future. And to be honest, I mentioned earlier, these are cultural activities and behaviors that existed for generations. When you go out there and you begin to get your hands dirty by by putting in a garden or going over to a neighbor's house um, and uh, helping them install a solar panel, canning some of your food, uh, volunteering in your community. You know, these are these are things that actually really feed the soul. They are definitely quality of life enhancers. So, you know, both my my business partner and myself, we, you know, lived corporate lives. I lived in Silicon Valley until I moved up to an a, in a much, you know, more rural agrarian community up here that really values sustainability. We have found firsthand that by, you know, putting yourselves in a position where you're much closer to the resources that you actually use on a daily basis and you actually know the people behind the resources that you depend on, you know, whether it's food or, or services in your community, it, it's a much healthier lifestyle and it's a much healthier way of life. You have relationships, both personal and professional, where people are basically um, happy for you, but but also value your role in their community so that if community strife ever hits, they're going to be there to, to, to support you and to have your back. So all of those resources are, are uh, accumulated in the Resilient Life part of the site. Um, there's lots of educational uh, resources from from wikis and, and articles on, on how to do a lot of the uh, the actions that are, the activities that I've mentioned. Um, and there's also online groups there where you can communicate with people worldwide about certain topics. So let's say you want to put in a garden, you've never done it. We have hundreds of experienced gardeners that you can ask questions to and, and, and get great advice that are going to so, uh, save you hours and hours of, of, of man time that, that uh, you might make if, uh, of mistakes you might make had you not known uh, these best practices. And you can also use the tools to find people in your local area so that if you if you're interested in, in developing resiliency, but you don't really know a lot of people around your, your area that you can engage with on this, um, you can get online and actually find people in driving distance from where you live. You can foster relationships with them and, and they can come over to your house, help you put in a garden bed. You can go over to their house and help them do something that's important to them. So if, if any of that sounds uh, of interest to you, that's the type of, of information that we, we offer through there, uh, in addition to... Um, insights on on things like career transition, um, of which we have a a fair amount of information there, as well as groups of people that you can connect with um, as a support group or to learn about uh, different industries and whatnot. So um, if it's the the career transition that we're talking about today, that's, that's your greatest need. There's also resources there to help you too. Excellent. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. I really appreciate it, Greg. I enjoy the time. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website, that's legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. 
You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests. And if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.